Deep pattern, downfield, touchdown Miami! What a throw, Devontae Parker! Holy smokes, what a drive! What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? It is a Tuesday. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, some good news. We're going to bury the football after this one and turn the page here on Turn the Page Tuesday, and we'll unpack the rest of the Week 2 loss to the Buffalo Bills with the rewatch and omission notes. We'll break down the stats, advanced metrics, and the snap counts. Plus, we'll see what you're talking about on the socials, and we'll run another segment from the Miami Dolphins' fifth quarter postgame show with yours truly, OJ McDuffie and Seth Levitt. All of that and more coming up here from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins So Coach spoke with us on Monday afternoon, and just a quick few updates from that press availability. Tua Tungavailoa, who suffered that injury at the early stages of the Buffalo game on Sunday, is reportedly day-to-day, according to Brian Flores. He said we're going to take this thing day-by-day. He also discussed possible flak jacket scenarios for resolutions to help deal with that bruised rib that he suffered in the loss of the Buffalo Bills. But as far as the NFL Network reporting goes, nothing serious as far as structural damage there for Tua. So it sounds like avoided a possible lengthy lingering injury there with the ribs. But of course, pain is still a big part of that as well. So Brian Flores talking about, we'll take it day by day, see how he goes and progresses throughout the course of the week and see how he practices on Wednesday when the Dolphins go back to the practice field. Coach also said that Tua tried to go back into the game on Sunday against Buffalo. So the kid, obviously, uh, a lot of toughness, as Coach Flores put it, saying that he's never once questioned Tua's toughness, and he definitely wanted to get back on the field and make an impact in the game under center. Also, nothing too serious per coach with Jesse Davis and Jakeem Grant, both who exited the game and did not return. So they got some good news on those scans as well, in the same way they did with Tua Tungavailoa. He also mentioned... as far as the offensive line goes, they're going to take a look at some personnel and make some decisions based upon what they find in their corrections for the film this week. Obviously here on a Monday afternoon ahead of this Tuesday release podcast, they have a couple of days to kind of get the game plan in order to install that for Wednesday's practice and start going that direction. So we'll see if there's some shakeup there. We saw plenty of shakeup in terms of who played in the game on Sunday, partly because of injury, but also one move at the end of the game we'll talk about here at the end of the podcast. And coach was asked specifically about Austin Jackson, who's off to a rough start this season, as we saw on Sunday. He said that he's got to play better, but he's not alone. Also mentioned that they're going to take a look at that unit, take a look and try to find some corrections and some evaluations that can get them the best five guys back onto the field. So plenty of stuff for the Dolphins coaching staff to work on this week. And then finally, so Tua being day-to-day is good news, but Will Fuller back with the team this week and expected to play in the game on Sunday. Cam Wolf of the NFL Network reported that after a weekend away, Will Fuller's in a better headspace, a little more clear-minded after the week that was. So here we have Will Fuller back in the fold with the football team this week, as Brian Flores stated at his press conference. All right, let's do this quickly, shall we? It's time for 
the omissions slash rewatch portion of the Turn the Page Tuesday podcast here on Drive Time, go ahead and hit that subscribe button for us. Give us a rating, give us a review. And we have a couple of new reviews there on the Apple Podcast uh, reviews that we're going to get to in the mailbag later on this week. If you guys want to have a question answered here on the podcast, go ahead and drop us a note there in the Apple Podcast reviews. That'll get you on the podcast here on Drive Time. But first impressions here of the rewatch was the tackle play. And we'll talk about that here with the stats that kind of back up the, the poor tape that we saw in the game on Sunday. And one of the things that I saw repeatedly from both tackles and Austin Jackson, as well as Jesse Davis, and then a little bit with Liam Eikenberg later on too, but primarily with Jackson at left tackle is that the feet kind of get stuck to the ground. And anytime you have, you know, defensive linemen or pass rushers, the entire name of the game is to create momentum in a way that you can suddenly disrupt that momentum. So you want to get a player leaning one way and then go the opposite way, right? Like elementary basis, it sounds very fundamentally easy, but that's the name of the game. It's like the same thing as saying, you know, baseball's hitting a rock with a stick or, you know, basketball, you got to put a a ball through a cylinder. Like when you break sports down to their core elements, they sound kind of silly, but that's what offensive line play is, trying to get momentum one way and and react accordingly and, and use that momentum against the player. And so with regards to Austin Jackson, I just keep seeing those feet get stuck on the ground. And then once the player either crosses face and goes inside or puts a jab step inside, then goes back around the outside edge, Austin kind of gets to the initial landmark and then the feet go dead and it's causing, you know, some pass rush peril for him to try to react and get back in front and mirror and redirect. And I thought we saw some examples of him doing a good job with that in training camp and so for it to come out here on game day and not look the same, it's, it's just been, you know, a tough summer for Austin Jackson, obviously. And, you know, the weird part is that one of my favorite traits of Austin's coming out was the kick slide and the feet and how athletic he was and how nimble he was for a guy that size and the way he moved in the lower half. And that's why you project a player like him as a high upside player who winds up going in the first round of the draft. Daniel Jeremiah at his conference call, I think it was pre-combine, like right before... COVID madness happened in our country and across the world. He had a conference call saying that Austin Jackson is going to be a top 20 pick or top 25 pick. And he winds up going number 18 to Miami, I think is the fifth tackle off the board. in what was, you know, perceptionally a dominant offensive tackle class. And, you know, just to kind of take a quick aside here real quick, isn't that class funny to look at back in hindsight? Like Andrew Thomas goes first off the board and he's struggled in his career so far with the Giants. And then you had Makai Becton go, who's looked great when he's been healthy, but he's been banged up. And then Jedrick Wills and Tristan Wirfs, the third and fourth guys off the board. I mean, Wirfs is like an all-pro already, and Wills looks just like he's right behind him in that regard as well. So it's just, you know, drafting is a funny beast, and evaluating is a funny beast. I thought that was worth pointing out here because Austin was kind of the first of that next tier, you know, and I'm using air quotes as far as scouts and pundits would have it to come off the board. And so you saw the traits that made Austin Jackson a top 20 pick in this year's draft, and he hasn't played that way. That's, I mean, just to be brutally honest about it, it hasn't, it hasn't been that way for him on Sundays. And so you look at how you develop a player like that, and you know, as far as his career at USC, it was short, and they just you didn't have a lot of tape to go off of because also one of those entire seasons was coming up with the caveat that 
he didn't have an off-season for strength training or, or really for any conditioning because he had the, the bone marrow donation to his sister to save her life, which obviously anybody would do, and he was a, a, you know, a hero for doing that, but he wasn't able to regain the strength that he normally played at that season. So you have one year of tape where it's not really the full complement of what he can do. And then I thought last year he had a bunch of good moments, and it got trickier down the stretch and then now into camp and into this season, it's been a struggle for him. But I think that that's the number one thing as far as just the feet on the ground. Like, get those typewriter feet going because that's going to really help him. And he can do it physically. Like, he has it in the wheelhouse to make that stuff happen. We'll just see if they can get it together. And, and you know, that's my assessment. We'll see what Coach Lemuel Jean-Pierre and the Dolphins offensive staff says about how to get him going and get him going in the right direction. But we'll see if they can make that change. And I think the interesting dichotomy here is, you know, Michael Dieter despite opening camp as center one, as it were, and holding that position all summer long, the general prevailing thought among fans was that he would eventually give way to either Matt Skura or Cameron Tom, or that that position just wasn't in good shape. But he's been the best offensive lineman for my money through the first two weeks. He's been good. So what does that say? I mean, he's developed into a good player in his third year after a really tough rookie season where he just had a bunch of learning moments, so to speak, and then a sophomore season where he only plays 22 snaps. So you end this game with five linemen after Davis goes down who are in either year one with Liam Eikenberg, year two with Jackson, Kinley, and Hunt, or year three in Michael Dieter. So this is kind of the year for those guys to develop, and if you can see growth, that can give you some promise heading into the future. And the Dolphins have a bunch of cap space and more draft capital next year. But I'm not going to get into that right now because that's 15 games, 15 weeks down. Is it 15 games? Yeah, 15 games down the line. And I'm not about to start talking preseason or not not preseason, offseason. Forget all that. Like we just went through what is the longest offseason in American professional sports. So I'll be damned if I'm going to even consider looking to the part of the calendar here in late September when we have 15 games to go. A lot of football left. I'm not talking about changes in the 2022 season. Forget that nonsense, man. Like, get that all the way out of here. But you do have to get better up front. No question about that. And that's what the this game is. It's not, hey, we have an issue. Let's go buy the fix. Like, you got to develop. You have to coach. You have to get guys ready in the right way. And that's what the Dolphins staff is going to do. Brian Flores talked about that in his press conference saying, you know what, we have to we got to be better, and we'll, we'll get better. We'll make the corrections. We'll go out there and put a good week of practice on, you know, out there for Wednesday through Friday and get ready for Las Vegas. So that was a good takeaway. And, you know, there's a rep in the second quarter where Jacoby is sacked, and they run this little game with the nose tackle and the stack backer right behind him. So when you hear me say stack, that just means a player is lined up behind another player. It can be offensive or defensive. Your receivers can be stacked at the line of scrimmage. Your linebackers typically stack behind a defensive lineman in certain schemes. So the nose tackle, which lines up head up over the center, over Michael Dieter, slants to Dieter's left, and that linebacker who's stacked behind him scrapes over the gap on the right side, the A-gap off to Dieter's right. And Jesse Davis at right tackle has a one-on-one assignment, and Rob Hunt at right guard is kind of, not kind of, his head's looking to the right, at Davis's matchup and just kind of watching it. And he throws his left arm out there in an attempt to block that scraping linebacker rushing free in the most imminently dangerous position on the football field, the A-gap, right? The quickest route to the quarterback is the A-gap. Why are we throwing an arm out there to try to make that block happen? It doesn't make any sense to me. But that's all to say that it's correctable, but they have to do it. You can't just say it's correctable and make it happen. You have to go out there and put the work in and make this, you know, put the studying in and make it happen on the field. 
So, yeah, just like the play of the tackles, it wasn't good. And, you know, Rob Hunt said it himself after the game that he didn't think his play or the line play was good. I thought Solomon Kinley had some moments, but he also had some gaffes. And the same was true of Dieter at the center spot and for Eichenberg as well at right tackle. It just was not a strong showing by anybody on that front. And the great part about football, though, is we get a chance to fix it next week. We'll see how that goes. What else? Uh, Two was work in this game. You know, there were some plays where we talked about this on the Sunday podcast where there's one receiver in the route concept to a particular side of the field. And the Bills did a great job squatting on that initial read when two would go there. So when he comes off and tries to get to the backside, well, with the pressure packages and the performance of the offensive line, the pressure was already there. So you have a couple of corrections I think you can make, you know, for my money. I won't sit here and tell you it's as easy as this and that or the other, but you've got to find out if you need to keep more guys in to handle those pressures or if you got to space it out, maybe go a little more empty and give two or more options that can make the defense declare early so he can beat the rush with his mind with the quick release and all that fun stuff we've grown to love with Tua Tungavailoa. I think he's capable of that, but man, that second sack, he looks at Parker on the slant and the hook backer is just chilling there and the outside corner waiting for the move back outside or a possible sluggo from Devontae Parker. It's tough to win with that. And that's what he was dealing with for the nine snaps that he played in this game. Then Jacoby Brissett checks in and you've heard me talk about this at length. I believe that one of Tua's greatest strengths is his ability to mitigate pressure, getting off that original spot and getting the football out against that pressure. He was great in college and showed some really good strides this summer and this preseason and even into week one. I mean, hell, his numbers against the Blitz last season were the best numbers of any advanced metric category out there. Now he has just five pass attempts against the Blitz this season, but last year he was completing 65% for 674 yards, just a smidge under seven yards per attempt and seven touchdowns to one pick, all that against the Blitz. And again, we saw it in the preseason, some of those pressures where he would climb the pocket or extend and make plays. Now with Jacoby, the blocking didn't get better, and Jacoby did a hell of a job to withstand a lot of it, I thought. I mean, he's got guys climbing on him like something out of I Am Legend with Will Smith, and he's still upright back there trying to just stand and and drop the arm to the three-quarter slot and make a throw, doing anything he can to work with what he has. But even with that effort, he's just not the springy stepper who's got that quick twitch in the feet to, to really change the launch point for the edge pressure you're going to see or even right down the middle to get off that spot and get to a new spot I just don't think that's his game so that's where I think things start to kind of cascade on the Dolphins offense with the pressure and regardless of what's going on downfield in the intermediate deep or even the short game you just can't get to it because he has to figure out a way to deal with that pressure first before even considering getting the ball up and out of his hands. At running back, I thought Miles Gaskin's first big run was a thing of beauty. He presses that thing so hard right off the blocks on the interior and then gets around the edge, basically kind of made a lane for himself, but he also got good blocks from Smythe and Preston Williams out there on that run. But his big knock as far as some of the advanced analytics you'll hear later on the podcast and pass protection, and generally I like his aggressiveness to go get guys. Like he seeks them out and goes and finds them and puts a hat on them. And that's what we talked about in the offensive line rewatch, right? Like how you have to be concerned first and foremost with those A-gap pressures. So Miles would try to get to those blocks, but then that would expose the tackles to these one-on-one situations with extra blitzers, and they would just come clean, and you can't have that. They would you know, either win the one-on-one matchups against the tackles or just get a free rusher. Either way, it wasn't good. Now, defensively, I know I thought Christian Wilkins 
did what he typically does well. He's holding the point against double teams, and he makes plays when he's singled up. He continues to really impress me with how he works against stretch and outside zone. Pretty much anything wide, he can get down the line, stay on the block until it's time to come off the block and make those plays. Buffalo, though, you want to ask me, Travis, why was the run game so successful if you have positive notes? They did a good job, in my opinion, of getting those doubles at the point. And what I saw was a few times them getting the, their preferred personnel package to run against for that specific call. Like, for instance, you know, on the 46-yard Devin Singletary touchdown run, Miami's in dime defense there. And I talked about it on Sunday that Brandon Jones was a stacked linebacker in that possession or in that, in that particular play. And that can be tough. I mean, remember the, I think it was Lamar Jackson's rookie season when the Chargers stamped out the Ravens in that playoff game a couple of years ago with that dime defense to deal with Lamar Jackson. Derwin James was kind of the focal point of that dime defense. And it's like, wow, the, the Chargers have this, you know, six defensive back driven defense that can really be modern for the, or can really be adaptable for the modern game. Then they come back out for the divisional round playoffs and the Patriots just whack them in the mouth with duo and power and gap scheme and just use their size advantage against that Chargers dime defense. And there was some of that in this game too. From a passing game perspective, I think, you know, where they got us was just Josh Allen being really difficult to deal with in terms of if you play coverage and you do get home, then you still need to get him to the ground and he can make you miss with athleticism, but also with the power and a lot of that off script stuff, man. I thought, I thought they did well in structure, but the explosion, the explosive plays largely came from broken plays. And then that one big pass to Sanders was just Josh Allen, you know, throwing a perfect ball over the top of Byron Jones. So I thought that was Buffalo's plan and it was sound to get that production from an individual standpoint. I thought X and Byron had really nice games. I thought Brandon Jones had some really promising moments. Same for Javon Holland. I love Justin Coleman's production in the short areas, both against the pass and the running game. But even with some of the good individual moments in the secondary, ultimately, it just wasn't good enough. So burn the tape and move on. Let's go ahead and finish up this podcast with some numbers, some stats, some snap counts for you guys. And we'll scan the social and play some stuff from the postgame show. But PFF numbers, Jacoby when blitzed, 7 for 10 for 37 yards and a pick. It's not going to cut it. Under pressure, 13 for 22 with 106 yards. And again, that same pick. Uh, they had one pass that went beyond 20 yards, incomplete. In the intermediate area, 10 to 19 yards. He was 3 of 6 with 46 yards and a pick. So just tough days for the Dolphins passing offense all around. On the offensive line, you know it wasn't good. Austin Jackson, 8 pressures according to PFF and 2 hits. Now he did have some good work in the ground game, which was, that's kind of been the theme of my evaluation this summer, was kind of the converse of his scouting report coming out. He's showing some real grit in the run game to get push and get guys moved out of gaps. And you also go back and watch that 13-yard screen hitter, quick hitter to Jalen Waddle. Take a look at 73 on that play. He's downfield, and he knocks a guy out and pancakes somebody. So there's some moments there for Austin Jackson. Uh, Liam Eikenberg, five pressures, no QB hits. Now it's just a half a football, so not great. Jesse Davis, four pressures, one hit. Again, a half a football, nine pressures off the right tackle, and eight off your left tackle, a 17 total. Solomon Kinley, four pressures, no hits. Robert Hunt, three pressures, no hits. Michael Dieter, two pressures, no hits. And Miles Gaskin, six pressures with two hits. So uh, not great. Not great in pass protection. Your running back production here. Malcolm Brown led the way with 4.2 yards after initial contact, and he forced three missed tackles. Nobody else forced more than one missed tackle. Savon Ahmed had two yards after initial contact average, and Miles Gaskin, 1.4 yards after initial contact. At receiver and tight end, Jalen Waddle caught six of seven targets, but it was just 0.7 A dots, so like literally less than a yard. 
downfield of depth. A lot of quick hitters, but a nice mix of inside and outside. 32% out wide, the rest in the slot, 69%. Nice. 42 of his 48 yards came after the catch. So this guy continues to create yards basically on his own. Like that's that's like an extension of the running game and say, hey, Waddle, go create yardage. And guys are making blocks for him. Don't get that twisted. But that's I would do that a lot more. Get the ball in his hands. He makes plays, man. Mike Gesicki, three of six uh, catches on six targets. A dot of 11.3 yards. Now he had 25 yards of depth on the interception. So that kind of skews things a little bit. But 85% in the slot, 12% out wide, and 2.5% in line for Mike Gesicki. That's, that's, re- that's receiver usage there. Devontae Parker, five catches on eight targets with an A dot of 11.8. Now he had the drop on the end zone ball, 32 yards down the field. So those A dots for Gesicki and Parker taking some vertical shots, but just in general, way deeper than Waddle's getting his chances. Preston Williams caught one of three targets with an A dot of 2.7, and the other guys didn't qualify as far as A dot goes. So those are numbers for the receivers. Defensively, Sam Egwavon had three pressures on four pass rushing snaps. Not bad, huh? 75% production right there from Sam Egelvon. Andrew Van Ginkle had three pressures, including a half a sack and a hit and a hurry. Also had two run stops and a forced fumble, so his production there looks pretty good. And Adam Butler had three pressures as well. All of those were hurries in the game. But Emmanuel Ogba led the way once again with six QB pressures. He had a half sack, two QB hits, and three run stops. He's been playing really well in all facets, but mostly with the power. I love his ability to get offensive tackles hands down and corner at the same time. He uses those guys as leverage and kind of their own weight against them. He's been fantastic through two games. The rest of the pressures, Holland, Sealer, and Baker had two apiece, and Jalen Phillips had one pressure in the game. Your pass coverage numbers, now these are pretty good. Byron Jones, eight targets, three catches, 55 yards. That's less than seven yards per per target. Xavier Howard, three catches on seven targets for 53 yards, and one of those was the jump ball 40-yarder towards the end of the game, but just over seven yards per target, largely on Stephon Diggs. In fact, Stephon Diggs had seven yards on one catch on two targets on Byron Jones. He had three catches on six targets for 53 yards on Xavier Howard with a touchdown and a pick. So pretty good stuff there on Stephon Diggs for the day. And then back to the numbers, Justin Coleman allowed five catches on six targets, but just 21 yards. That's, what is that, like three and a half yards per target? I thought he was really good in the game. So that's the effectiveness of the pass coverage. Not bad in general, but, I mean, obviously not the results you want. Run stops, Sealer, Brandon Jones, and Emmanuel Ogba all had three apiece. Christian Wilkins, Eric Rowe, and Andrew Van Ginkle all had two apiece, and then some guys had one run stop in the game. Your next-gen stats, the Dolphins had a 25% blitz rate in this game and 83% man coverage. So that was kind of the secret sauce to get a sub-200-yard day from Josh Allen. That's way more man coverage than usual. They're usually in the 55-60% range as far as next-gen stats goes, and that's about half the blitz rate as normal, right? Typically about a 45-50% blitz rate down to 25%. So I love the idea that they actually do have these adaptable week-to-week game plans. So many coaches talk about it. This coaching staff talks about it and does it. Jacoby Brissett checks in on next-gen stats, just two hundredths of a second more time to throw than Tua Tungavailoa, so it was 2.61 compared to 2.59, but Brissett's aggressive rating was 25.8% and Tua's 42.8% on the season, so Tua being more vertical uh, with his pass options. The separation numbers on the season, Jalen Waddles at 4.7 yards, average separation, Devontae Parker 2.2 yards, and Mike Gesicki 2.1. Nobody else has qualifying metrics to get on the board. Snap count takeaways here. 
Quarterbacks, Tua had nine snaps. Jacoby had 65. Nothing to get into there. One guy was hurt. One guy was healthy. At running back, Miles played 45. Savon played 23. And Malcolm Brown had nine snaps. So akin to Gaskin's workload a season ago, Savon has a nice little bump from game number one there. But there was also some 21 personnel with Miles and Savon in the game at the same time. So interesting uh, usage there for the running backs. At receiver, Parker 55, Waddle 47, Albert Wilson 41, and then a drop-off. Preston Williams 22, Mac Holland 16, Jakeem Grant 7. Now, they ran 24 plays out of 12 personnel package, and that was primarily Parker and Williams. So it kind of coincides with Preston Williams' 22 snaps. You play 24 snaps in 12 personnel packages. Typically a bigger, you know, basketball as far as your lineup goes that's a power forward and center type of lineup with your two tight ends and the two big receivers and obviously Mac Hollins can run some of that too so that was the bigger bodies your 11 personnel was primarily Parker Waddle and Albert Wilson with Waddle and Parker as the two primary guys across multiple packages they, they left the field fewer than anybody else did at tight end, after Durham Smythe takes the bulk last week, back to Mike Gesicki on top with 47, Durham Smythe 22 snaps, and Adam Shaheen 20 in his season debut here for the Miami Dolphins. So Gesicki, you know, a little bit more passing urgency in this game. He gets the, the 47 snaps, which was tied for second among all pass catchers in this game. All skill players, actually, over the running backs. Offensive line, Jackson, Dieter, and Hunt played 74, wire to wire. Kinley played 67, Davis played 45, Eichenberg 29, and Robert Jones played seven snaps. Now, Eichenberg's first work of the season at right tackle just looks more comfortable at left tackle so far. We'll see if he can continue to kind of build and grow at right tackle, but I thought game one was a lot better for him than game number two. And how about getting a look at Robert Jones? Now, it was only seven snaps, you know, minuscule work, but it occurred mid-series he came in for Solomon Kinley there on that last drive of the game, but the first play, he pulls play side and hits the key block for a nice six-yard Malcolm Brown run. Then he climbs on the next play and seals at the second level. Then he comes back and has a double where he kind of drops his inside shoulder and uses his power and his push to get push off the ball, some knockback. Then he comes off and gets to the second level after that block. The next one doesn't have a ton of push on the three technique. Then he goes back into pass pro, and he and Dieter have a nice double team, but not much to take away from that as far as an individual goes. The next one has a really nice rep where he stonewalls the one technique, and then he finishes his short day with another double team rep with Michael Dieter. So I thought Robert Jones played pretty good in just seven snaps. In fact, Pro Football Focus had him as their top graded guy. Now, we don't really use their grade so much, but that's you know worth mentioning here on the podcast. So look, I'm not going to sit here and, and suggest drastic overhauls after one bad game, but you saw a lot of this team's available linemen in the game, and we know about the versatility. So they have options there if they want to shake things up, like Brian Flores said, that they possibly could do. They have the option to do that because of all these guys' versatility and some guys that maybe you want to see some more of on Sundays. Defensive snap counts, Adam Butler, 47, led all interior defensive linemen. And, you know, his versatility across multiple packages is always going to get him in the lineup because he can one-gap, two-gap, play nose, play three, play whatever you want him to. He's, he's multiple. Same with Christian Wilkins, 44 snaps, not that far behind. Multiple schemes, multiple packages, multiple positions. Zach Sealer, 33 snaps. And then John Jenkins had 18 one week after playing more than 40 snaps. Again, I think that kind of shows you the difference stylistically between New England and Buffalo and how they approach it. Off the edge, Emmanuel Ogba played 47 snaps. I wrote 467 on my notes. I don't think he played that much. Andrew Van Ginkle had 46. Brian Scarlett had 20. Jalen Phillips had 18 in the game. So Emmanuel Ogba continues to be your kind of go-to edge rusher there. He and Van Ginkle, I thought both had good games in this one, just kind of got lost in the sauce there. Your off-ball linebackers, Baker played 
all but one snap with 63 reps. E-Rob played just 19 snaps, and Sam Egwavon, eight snaps in the game. Again, effective rush early on, and then Duke Riley, two snaps. So you go back to the discussion this offseason, or right before the season when they cut Bernardrick McKinney, you know, one of the qu- questions the coach was asked, and I love the way he answered it, was, how do you feel about your linebacker depth? You know, you cut Bernardrick McKinney, and he said sometimes you play three on a field, sometimes you play two, sometimes you play one, sometimes you don't play any. And Jerome Baker plays 63 snaps, but everybody else in the game combined played 19 snaps. So take that for what it's worth. Defensive backs, Byron Jones and Xavier Howard, 62 snaps apiece. That's 95% of the workload. Jason McCourty played 58. Javon Holland played 50. And man, this guy's game continues to impress me. His ability to find the football, to be controlled but, but fast in space and instinctive. His tackling. Love Javon Holland's game. Justin Coleman played 49 snaps, Brandon Jones 41, Eric Rowe 26, and Nick Needham played two snaps. Now quickly on the Eric Rowe note there, Brian Flores was asked about that and he said, yeah, you know, different weeks call for different plans. I'm sure next week it'll be something different. So this team is going to use the players they believe have the best chance to give them a chance to win in that particular game, and we're not going to worry about starters and sub. And It's, it's all about matchup based, man. That's how this defense works. That's how this league works. Special teams-wise, Fedulum, 22 snaps. Uh, Brandon Scarlett, Sam Egwavon, and Jamal Perry all had 14 apiece. Duke Riley, 13. Brandon Jones, 11. And some guys in offense, both Seaton Carter and Mac Hollins played 13 special team snaps with Durham Smythe, 12. So that's kind of your core guys that you look at as far as special teams goes. And let's go ahead and finish this up with a scanning the Soch segment. You know, I want to acknowledge how impossible it is to find a point on social right now to refute it. And as hard as it can be to do this, guys, can we just like chill a little bit on the definitive nature of one game, of one football game? You know, I will never, ever, ever understand that. Like we've all been watching this team in this sport for years, right? For decades, probably. Now, I don't assume we have many listeners who are brand new to the game. If you are, let me just tell you, this is this league is a week to week league where things often change. I don't want to sit here and go over all the good teams that have suffered blowout losses, but I mean... It happens every single year. The Packers just lost in the same way in their season opener in a neutral site game against a team that hadn't been home in three weeks, sleeping in hotels because they're displaced from a hurricane in the New Orleans Saints. Like, it happens. Tonight, the Packers will play the Lions, and I'm doing this before the game plays, but I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to bet you Green Bay does pretty well in that game. Last year, Tampa Bay lost like 38-3 to or something like that to, to the Saints their last loss of the season, they went on to win the Super Bowl. So I'm saying it, it happens, like it happens. And I, I do think it's fair to say, well, that team has our number. And until we beat them, we don't get to be the brash, braggadocious fans you love to be. I know we all crave that. Like what's more fun than being a cocky, confident fan? But we'll get them again on Halloween. But the Raiders are next. And that game you just saw means nothing for the Raiders game. That's it. It's done. Let's move on and take advantage of another opportunity to play a good football game, get that goodwill back up and find another road victory and get to 2-1 and one before coming back home for the Shula celebration. Caroline, daddy's coming home. Put it in the books. Stay tuned after the outro here for another post-game segment, sh- uh, post-game show segment with me, Seth, and OJ. But in the meantime, that's going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. You can follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast with Seth and OJ McDuffie. You also can check out all the media availabilities on the team YouTube channel up on YouTube.com. And, of course, MiamiDolphins.com for all your written, photo, video needs, everything up there. Until next time, fins up. 
back here on the Miami Dolphins fifth quarter postgame show on the Miami Dolphins radio network, Fish Tank and Drive Time coming your way, Seth. I thought we were uh, branded for both those things there. You know, I, a little bit of... Hey, you slip, a, you slip 100 yeah. bucks to uh, Solana, yeah, you never know what you can get promoted here on the post game. Especially when you got Ron Burgundy in the controls here reading exactly <laughs> what's in front of his face without taking a second beat to look at it. I love that new intro. But we'll go with it. The fish tank. Fish tank is the way we do it. So <laughs> we're back here on the, on the post game show, though, talking about Buffalo 35, Miami 0. Sorry, I'm having a hard time even getting that out of my mouth right now, Juice. It's yeah. Sour taste in my mouth after this game, but um, I wanted to come back to you and talk to you about how the players respond to this because, you know, these types of games happen. Look at the Packers last week in, in week number one, got obliterated by the New, York, New Orleans Saints in a game where most folks thought the Packers would win that game and they have to find a way to, you know, quote-unquote bury the football and come back the next week. What's your perspective as a player on a game like this where everything goes wrong, everyone in the stands is calling you, a, you know, trash for, for lack of a better term, and how do you kind of bounce back from that? Well, you know what? There's a lot to learn from this last game. You know, a lot of this has to be gone, though. You got to let it go. You know, the first thing they've got to get over, first and foremost, is the Tua situation. You know, they have to realize that there's a great chance that Tua won't be there next week. And Jacoby's a, a veteran. He'll, he'll, he'll handle that situation. But the rest of the offense has to figure that out as well. No matter what, man, it's, it is. And Seth, Seth said it. This is only week two of the season. It's 15 you know, more games. There's too. a lot of games left. But the more important thing is we've got two more games games coming up within the conference you know what i mean so i think that's that's critical to think about first and foremost conference you know we've already we're one in one division now we still got to think about the afc you know with las vegas coming up next and then indy after that you know it's important games so honestly you just got to bury it you do have to bury this game i don't even know how much the film they're going to watch i think what i would do is i'm coach flow is i'm just going through individual group meeting walkthroughs and you just look at your mistakes we don't need to watch as a team we know what we did and what we didn't do you know so they have to let it go my problem is you know when i played there's a few guys we get beat we never got beat like this but you know except for that playoff game you know guys are gonna be trying to get out and about tonight i would be i'd hate to go to Publix right now i wouldn't stop and get <laughs> gas right now i was telling a story today where i was like we lost a game here and i was running out of gas i, I was running late so i <laughs> i I couldn't even get gas. So I was barely on, had any gas. And I went to the, after the game, after we lost, I went over here and got some gas. And these dudes was giving me the business. <laughs> like, man, you know, we, man, what happened today, you know? I hope these guys have that same sense that what happened today. Have a little sense of pride in themselves. Get up in the morning, you know, hang out tonight at home. Get up and get ready to go look at some film on their own. And get ready for, to, to make some corrections. Because there's a million corrections to make. Somebody was talking about, you know, the drop passes, they got a junk machine, all this stuff. Yeah, they got a junk machine. But you know what? There's not a, a, a corner or a safety or a linebacker bearing down on you when you're about to get hit, you know? So there's a lot of things that were physical mistakes. And that's what physical mistakes become of issue when you're dropping passes, you know, fumbling the ball, things like that. Mental mistakes are the ones that I think are easier to correct, but I think you can draw it up. But these physical mistakes, they got to get out of their own heads, Big Seth. And I think that's an issue I'm seeing right now. Well, I'll take your word for it, right? If anybody knows what, what it's going to take to make that happen, it would be you. Um, but I also think that a lot of these guys, particularly with the drops, are guys that we have seen make those catches in the past. So I, I hope that this is not a trend, and this is something that, that we literally, as you said, as you burn the game plan, burn the game film, and we don't see those drops again. I, I was saying to you guys before we got on air here, and it, I know it sounds silly in a 35 to nothing loss, 
But I did not feel that Buffalo was overwhelmingly more talented than the Miami Dolphins today. You know, if you look across the board, there were some outstanding performances, but I didn't feel that this was just a, a grossly overmatched team, except in one place. I, I do leave this game with concerns about the offensive line play. Their defensive front not only dominated our, our offensive line, but, but guys were getting hurt, starting with Tua. And, and so, you know, that, that's a hard way to not just win a football game, but to get through a football game if you get destroyed in the trenches. So that is a concern. I know on Twitter our fans had questions about the offensive line the previous week, but they held up and they made it happen when it mattered. Today was definitely a problem. And it was a lot of the same problems, too. Early in that game, when two was still in the game, both the first two sacks came from a safety and a slot cornerback. And ironically, I had asked Tua this week in a press conference, how do you deal with these two safeties they have that fly all over the place, they mix it up, they, they basically are interchangeable in terms of their job? And he said, yeah, those two guys kind of spark the defense. They can come and show pressure, they can spin out, they can rotate. And he talked about that. And sure enough, there they are on that first drive showing up, and then he comes back later and gets that fourth down uh, hit and is back from A.J. Epinesa, who's a big, big defensive end, man. He's, he's quite a load. And there you have Brian Flores at the press conference. After the game, Dolphins lose this one, 35-30 to Buffalo. And just real quick there, Seth, any, any takeaway from Coach Flores' press conference there? A little bit of, I guess, encouraging news, saying we hope to get Tua back next week. We won't know until tomorrow, but it sounded more encouraging than you know something more dire, obviously. Yeah, look, I, I have to imagine Coach Flores wants to do what he is uh, responsible for here is to talk to the media and get out of there as quickly as possible <laughs> and then start watching film, right? And, you know, he's, he's going he's gonna to break this down quickly, and he's going to want to get in guys behind on Monday, I'd imagine, Juice, and then he wants to focus on Las Vegas, you know, and, and that, that's really it. I, you know, one of the questions was, do you have this concern about getting over the hump and, and Buffalo? And, uh, you know, to me... His focus can't be how do we beat the Buffalo Bills. He's not going to see them again for weeks, for months. His focus has to be how do we beat the Las Vegas Raiders. You deal with that on Halloween. That's, that's when the next game is against the Buffalo that's Bills. That's exactly right. you got to put them in the rearview mirror. It's an important game coming up. Raiders just beat the Steelers today as well, so they are 2-0 and to get off to the start, the fast start in their season. A couple of victories over AFC North clubs there. Maybe Juice going out west can be a bit of a positive for this team because I remember last year they started off 1-3, and three, and I, I spoke to Kyle Van Noy at the time, Dolphins linebacker, about – when the kind of gelling moment happened for this team, and he had mentioned it was that trip out to San Francisco. So maybe, maybe a trip, a road, a road trip, and a break from South Florida could be a positive. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, we 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 do well when we go out west. And I'm gonna tell you this, man. Coach Flo is gonna get it done. He's not gonna settle for that. Obviously, he's he's too good of a coach. He's got too good of a staff, you know. And the players are receptive of what they talk about. So there will be a lot of corrections. If they're not corrections, there will be replacements. So that's the way it's going to go down this week, you know, and the guys better be tuned in uh, because it's going to be a, a rough week. It's going to be a really rough week. It'll be curious. I'll be curious to see how the offensive line looks next week if there's a bit of a shuffle up front. Coach Flores always talks about playing the best five guys, so we'll see if it remains. Jesse Davis at right tackle. Liam Eikenberg came in for an injured Jesse Davis. He did in that first half there, so we'll see if that's the case. But we're going to break this down further, dissect a little bit more here. Look for some positives maybe if there are any in a 35-0 game. I don't know if there are. We'll, we'll try to find them. But, again, Ooh. final score above. Buffalo 35, Miami 0. You're listening to the Miami Dolphins post-game show on the Miami Dolphins radio network brought to you by the Palm Beaches.